for today's passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 1 through 5, we need to remember what was going on towards the end of the Apostle Paul's second missionary journey. And to do that, I'm going to read the accounts in Acts 17 and 18 to start us off today. You can remain seated for this. We'll stand later when we read the passage in 1 Corinthians. Um, This is helping us understand um, how Paul came to be in Corinth and then what happened when he got there. So just listen as I read, or you can follow along. I'll be starting in Acts chapter 17, verse 16. Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. Some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus in the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship is unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, even as some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone or an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness 
by a man whom he has appointed. And all of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, We will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst. But some men joined them and believed, among whom also were Dionysius and Aropagite, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. After this, Paul left, left Athens and went to Corinth. And he found a Jew named Aquila and a native of Pontus, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius has had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. And he went to see them because he was of the same trade. He stayed with them and worked, for they were tent makers by trade. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. When Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. And when they opposed and reviled him, he shook out his garments and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent. From now on I will go to the Gentiles. And he left there and went to the house of a man named Titus Justus, a worshiper of God. His house was next door to the synagogue. Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord together with his entire household. And many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking, and do not be silent, for I am with you. And no one will attack you to harm you, for I have many in this city who are my people." And he stayed a year and six months, teaching the word of God among them. But when Galileo was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews made a united attack on Paul and brought him before the tribunal, saying, This man is persuading people to worship God contrary to the law. But when Paul was about to open his mouth, Galileo said to the Jews, If it were a matter of wrongdoing or vicious crime, O Jews, I would have reason to accept your complaint. But since it's a matter of questions about words and names in your own law, see to it yourselves. I refuse to be a judge of these things. And he drove them from the tribunal. And they all then seized Sosthenes, the ruler of the synagogue, and beat him in front of the tribunal. But Galileo paid no attention to any of this. After this, Paul stayed many days longer and then took leave of the brothers and set sail to Syria. And with him was Priscilla and Aquila. Now, as far as results go, how did the second missionary journey look so far? Well, it was quite a story of up and down kind of roller coaster. Paul had, for instance, to get out of Thessalonica at night, away from the Jews who had incited some wicked men to form a mob and attack 
a convert's home trying to find him. And then in Berea, Paul and Silas found many noble Jews, the text says, willing to listen, who received the word with eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if what Paul was saying was true. Many Jews and Greeks believed there, but then the Thessalonica Jews showed up, still trying to get Paul, so he sailed away to Athens. And in Athens, as we just read, Paul's encounter with the philosophers was mainly unfavorable, except for some, we read, who did believe. So then, not far from Athens is Corinth. Many believed. Many were baptized. So now, a couple of years later, Paul has heard the disturbing news about how so many in this Corinthian church, which he founded, had veered away from what he taught them about Christ and the gospel. In chapter 1 of 1 Corinthians, he has already confronted their lack of unity and their divisiveness. He's also exposed their main problem, showing them how their love affair with their culture's values has actually led them into self-centered boasting. They had so quickly exchanged their reverence and adoration of the Lord and his gospel for the world's wisdom, which was used as a tool to lift themselves up in power and position and wealth and influence. All this going on in the church. In other words, they were excited about the wrong things. Wanting to listen to great speaking and rhetoric, but becoming more and more apathetic about content and truth and the application of truth. And as a result, this church was full of all types of infighting and positioning everyone out for themselves. The high regard for God and his word was dying along with humility and love for one another. And Paul had finished chapter 1 by making the very strong point that God does things in such a way so that people's high-mindedness would be brought low and actually put to nothing, brought to nothing. Why? Paul tells us, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God Almighty. Only as God's people recognize and value Him as the only one worthy of worship, would they be able to know Him, Would they be able to value his work in them? And they would be able to be grateful, gratefully dependent upon him. So now in chapter 2, which is where we are this morning, Paul begins to explain how his proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ, when he was among them, was a prime example of how God works in opposition to how they had messed up the message by the way they were living 
which was the way they were thinking. So if you are able, would you please stand as I read 1 Corinthians 2, verses 1 through 5. And again, I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. 1 Corinthians 2, the first five verses. And when I came to you, brothers, I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, that your faith may not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. In the very first verse here in the second chapter, Paul reminds them again, when I came to you, brethren, brothers, and we saw in Acts 18 that Paul stayed with Achille and Priscilla, who were fellow tent makers, who'd recently come to Corinth from Rome after Claudius, the Roman emperor, had kicked all the Jews out of the capital city. So Achilles and Priscilla seem to already be Christians when Paul finds them, and they become an important part of Paul's team, even going with him to Ephesus later, as we read about him sailing away to Syria. So what Paul does say here, and therefore what he says about the priorities for preachers is really important because it's not really just about preachers. It's about how we live based on what we really believe is true. So let's look at it. It's laid out very simply. First, Paul says he proclaimed the testimony of God. I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. Now, the reason why we read the context at first is because we need to remember where he came from. Right before this was Athens, the intellectual capital of the known world even probably competing with Rome on every area there, because this was the thinking place versus Rome, the point of power and great, great organizational skills and government, et cetera, et cetera. So after dealing with a host of philosophers in Athens, Paul makes it clear that he did not come to Corinth to philosophize about what might be true or possible or worthy of their attention. In other words, Paul is not presenting an argument from human wisdom for the gospel. Instead, he came to proclaim the testimony of God, 
And this means he came to Corinth as a witness, not a philosopher. Now, much has been made over how adept he was as a philosopher, brilliant. The argument that he used just from walking amongst the multitude of of idols in Athens, a connection point to these people, a strong argument. But he proves himself in Corinth by addressing everything more straightforwardly with no philosophical arguments at all. And we are left to look at this and see over the life of this particular apostle how really flexible he was in situations in getting the truth about God out with the gospel. So pay attention to that. It's going to be talked about in multiple ways as we go through this particular book. Because Corinth was full of everything. But he seemed to recognize very quickly what kind of a city Corinth was. Diverse beyond all imagination. And yet he recognized that because it was basically a trade route by sea, that people that became Christians would be going to port all over the Mediterranean area which means that if those people became Christians, the gospel would spread in ways that were not possible from normal people staying right where they lived their whole life. And that should make perfect sense to us. But he also realized that the philosophy that said our entertainment and what's important to us is how we speak, and we've got this guy that's going to come talk about this issue and did you notice what the Acts said and what Corinth and what our text said? These people were interested in Athens in any what? New idea. That was their God. Let's talk about this. Let's debate this. Let's see who can rip it apart. Let's see who can defend it. Let's see how many people believe it. That was their entertainment. It was their life. It was what made them tick. That influence had also hit Corinth, but Corinth was not the same kind of city. Corinth was down-to-earth grit. People were working. They were becoming rich. There was slaves. There was wealthy people in the trades. All kinds of people from all over the place because of that. People coming into port, people leaving, sailing through on their way somewhere else. So, we see Paul proclaiming the testimony of God as a witness to what? The Savior he met on the road to Damascus. And he kept it really pretty simple. He says, I didn't come with lofty speech or wisdom. And here, 
if you check all your translations, if we had everybody hold up their hands, if you got different translations with you, you would hear brilliance, lofty speech as brilliance, eloquence, superiority of speech. You get the point. That was what made people tick in so many places in Greece. That's what they were excited about. The basic idea is the same. Paul didn't come with eloquent verbiage or his own opinions. He came with God's revelation of Christ as the Savior. And this is what he proclaimed and taught. The question we need to ask about verse 1 is simple. Is that what we expect to be preached and taught? For the most part, I would say, amen. I believe that's where your hearts are, and they have been for a long, long time. Otherwise, we wouldn't be here. The group would look completely different. There's a commitment that has been in this place that God has made grow where your hearts want the truth And you could care less about my opinion or anybody else's opinion who teaches. And I praise God for that. We want to hear what God says in his word. Check that one off, but keep it handy because it is so easy to get away from that. The pulls to to hear other people's opinion or the slickness of something uh, which would out-trump the truth and clarity of God's word will always be there, will always be there. Every preacher's job is, as Paul wrote to Timothy, to devote themselves to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation and teaching. Period. Secondly, Paul says he focused on Jesus Christ and him crucified. In verse 2, we see that Paul acted on this priority by making a choice. Did you notice that? For I, what? Decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Well, this has to be the focus Now, this doesn't mean that Paul only taught passages that directly teach on the cross of Christ. He taught, quote, the whole counsel of God, unquote, as Acts 20, verse 27 makes clear. But we must realize that it is the cross of Christ that we've already heard in this book is the stumbling block or foolishness to unbelievers, Are you getting this? We have to preach and proclaim the gospel, which most people find either as a stumbling block to taking the next step, or they just think it's outright foolishness. And you have to decide that you're going to do that. Be willing to say that. 
be willing to live that out. And you have to want the people that lead you and teach you in this church to do that. And to keep doing that. John MacArthur writes, Until a person accepts God's revelation in the cross. You know, he gets pretty straight. Okay, Until a person accepts God's revelation in the cross. No other revelation matters. That hits. You got to think about that for a while. In other words, you got to get to the cross at some point. To help a person understand the gospel, Paul would go to any length to explain and clarify the cross. But he would not say one word to modify or contradict it. I think that's a great way to say it. It also does not mean that Paul was somehow a deficient communicator or insensitive to the different types of people he was speaking to. We hear these claims about Paul all the time, but they're usually overblown. We see in numerous places that Paul reasoned, these are the words that are used in our, in our Bibles, explained, proved, persuaded, as he proclaimed and taught. And we're going to get to meet him one day. You guys think you're having good discussions now. And Paul is remarkably flexible in his presentations and writings, as we saw in just a little over a chapter of Acts. Quite a difference. But again... Paul draws the line where he thinks the gospel might be jeopardized, doesn't he? Especially by any kind of eloquence or rhetoric that does not reinforce the message of a crucified Messiah. That's what you have to evaluate. If somebody's eloquent, praise God that they've got that gift. If they can use the rhetoric, praise God that they can use that gift. But how you evaluate it is, are they using the gift to glorify Him, or are they getting in some digs so that they'll sound good to some people they're trying to impress out here? There's a difference. And this is what Paul is trying to make clear to these folks. They've lost track of the difference. So this means that for Paul... All he does and teaches is tied to the cross, which means his life is gospel or cross-centered. And D.A. Carson has a good explanation for this. If he really believes that God has supremely disclosed himself in the cross and that to follow the crucified and risen Savior means dying daily, then it is preposterous to adopt a style of ministry that is triumphalistic, designed to impress others, or calculated to win applause. 
That sums it up. So what does this mean for Christians today? That's a roundabout way of saying, what does it mean to you and me? How easily can Christians let style and performance trump the fear of the Lord and the substance of what we're actually doing in worship? Whether we're leading in the service or participating in it. In other words, do we value a sobering reckoning over what it means to focus on Christ crucified? Those are two words that most people hate now, sobering reckoning. Are we humbly believing in him and depending on him as we consider his gift of himself for us? Talk about that today at your lunch. Third, Paul says that he did not fear weakness, illness, or the sense of being overwhelmed. And you're going, now wait a minute, Bobby, we just read that he was. Let's look at it. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. These kind of experiences very, are very often exactly the times when God greatly displays his power. Are they not? We don't like them. But we have to go through it over and over and over and over again. And one day it goes, ding. Oh, look what God did when I was completely so weak, I didn't even think I could get up and do this or think this or just get out of bed that day or call that person or whatever it is that you thought you should do. Then there's no doubt that it's God's power. And every once in a while in his grace, he lets us see that. Because we need to see it constantly. And why does he do that? We just said, because if the people around you are impressed by your own powerful personality or gifts, then there's very little room left for you to impress them with a crucified Savior. Is there? Now, I'm sure you recognize some implications of that. Everybody in this room... So many of you are going through right now or you have some stuff that you just never, you would never vote for. I sign up for this. You don't want to. I don't want to. How does this affect our attitudes about those things? It should affect them greatly. It's how God changes your heart. It's how he changes your affection for him as you realize that he turns what you think you're not going to get through into the times when you find out how faithful he is. And what Paul is writing about here is explained in that Acts 18 passage that I read earlier, especially in um, verses 9 and 10, 
He was so weak and fearful and overwhelmed with the task in Corinth that he needed God's intervention. And we just brush right over that. Why? Because we think, oh, Paul's so smart. Good grief. He's the one that took off in these ships and you know, went around places that most people never even knew were there. And he walked into towns and he just showed up at the synagogue and started sharing Christ in the middle of all these rabid Jews most of the time, which he was one. He knows what they were feeling. He was the guy trying to find and kill the Christians. So Paul would never feel like that. Did you hear that passage when I read it? Did you have any reaction at all when you heard that? I was with you in weakness and fear and much trembling. Paul learned, he learned how to fear the fear. You have a trouble with fear? Everybody has trouble with fear. Paul learned how to fear the fear which let him deal with it. What does that mean? He explains it in 2 Corinthians in a very familiar passage. In 2 Corinthians 12, verses 9 and 10. Remember, he was praying that God would take something away that was bugging him big time. It, it, was, it was causing him so much problem that he took it to the Lord multiple times. And God said, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weakness, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. And here he, he gets it. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with Weakness. Weakness says, plural, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Almost every one of us, it takes our whole lives until we are able to say, I am content with my weakness. And usually it's because we're so weak, we don't have any other choice. You can make the choice before you get there and be ready for it instead of being blinded to those experiences. And then you waste your, your, your strength, your health, your attitude and everything else fighting it so much that you miss out on the blessings that God has for you and being content with where he has you. And what he wants to do with you through that. How many of us have grandparents or had grandparents that you look back at now and you go, if they hadn't been praying for me when they were almost totally incapacitated, I wouldn't be here today. That's a great example. Some of the greatest prayer warriors on the face of the earth are our elderly. 
who take their situation and turn it into opportunities to pray about stuff and actually be able to keep the thread without losing it, falling asleep, getting hungry, turning on the game and everything else that we do in between everything else. And they pray like we don't know how. And I know there's a bunch of you that are sitting there going, oh, yeah. See, you want the prayers, but you don't want to have to go through the same thing maybe to, to do it. Well, there's a fourth thing in verse 4. Paul says he avoided manipulating people. My speech and my message were not implausible or persuasive or enticing words of wisdom. This doesn't mean he, he was never persuasive. Many other places we read about Paul being persuasive. Paul says he avoids persuasion that is what? Designed to manipulate people. Do you realize that literally almost everything we watch or listen to with our devices has hundreds of thousands of dollars banked into how to get your attention and make you want whatever they want you to want? When I found out in college that I couldn't follow my father's footsteps and be an accountant, I mean, I was going crazy. (laughs) I cannot sit in one more class. So I changed majors. This seemed to be a preoccupation of my college years. And I took marketing. And I never will forget, I was halfway through with one class. I think there was two days left before I could, you know, get out of the class without showing up on the records. And I was about ready to throw up because I knew I couldn't do it. I know there's... Christians all over the place in marketing and they do it the right way. I just I just thought I can't do this because what what was being aimed at was making people want things they didn't really need. Now you can help people find what they really need, which is how Christians kind of view all that. But do you see what Paul is saying here? In a world that lifted up speaking, even if you were speaking something that the world thought was foolishness or a stumbling block, hey, he knew that he could package it just like we see it being packaged so many ways today where nobody has any idea what it means to know Jesus and die daily. The cross isn't just a symbol you give to your loved one to wear around their neck. He knew what it meant. That the God of the universe came to this earth as a man and he died on the cross in order that we could know him. And he put one and one together and it hit two. 
That means if I follow him, I have to give up myself for him. He proved his love. I'm not asking him to prove his love anymore. He did it. How long is it going to take for me and you to accept that and see it for what it was? So we hit our knees together and we worship him. Just don't even say anything. I've said enough. Just worship him. Thank him. And Paul recognized that he had that that ability and he decided to avoid manipulating people. But he did persuade, but he persuaded without trying to manipulate them. Letting God use the gospel, which is the power of God for salvation. So manipulating people through enticing possibilities or ideas that will appeal to them or ensnare them is actually a means to exercise control over somebody in a way that you think they need to go. And since only God can and does change a person's heart, we must articulate the gospel clearly trusting in its power to accomplish what God intends. And that's how you market it. You make it clear. You care about the people you talk to. And you let God change their hearts. Manipulating people actually leads them into misplaced trust and therefore a questionable faith in something other than the genuine Christ of the Bible. And that ought to scare us to death. By what we say the gospel is, if we're leading them to trust in not the God of the Bible, but the God that they want to believe in, that'll give them everything they want and solve every problem and make them this and this and this, that's not the God of the Bible. And so we're actually pushing them into putting their faith in and thinking they're the real thing and believing a God that's not the God of the Bible. That's dangerous. But Paul's not finished. In the rest of verse 4 and 5, he says a cross-centered ministry depends upon the Spirit's power. He says, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. And that sums it up, doesn't it? Because the object of a person's faith is what counts. So it better be the God of the Bible who sent his son Christ to live the life that we can't live, a perfect life. That means he could be the acceptable sacrifice for us, for our sin, because sin means death. That's the condemnation. And Christ died bearing our sin on the cross. So where the Holy Spirit is actively opening people's hearts and changing them, there is the power and saving grace of God. That's the real thing. The faith of those turning to Christ 
is anchored in the object of their faith, the risen Christ. And where the Holy Spirit is absent or counterfeited, the professed faith of a new convert is likely to be what? Attached to the wrong things or the wrong thing. It explains a lot, doesn't it? I believe, I believe, I believe, I believe is the greatest experience of my life. Poof. A month later, where are they? They're gone. Now, I thought it was interesting, closing with a quote from Charles Spurgeon, who was probably the most eloquent preacher in history. But what made him different was that he recognized his gift as a gift from God that he wanted to glorify. So he used his gift to say things about God and how we come to him that most of us couldn't even do one phrase of, much less put it together in paragraphs. See what I mean? So... This is a short one from him, but it packs a punch. The power that is in the gospel does not lie in the eloquence of the preacher. Otherwise, men would be the converters of souls. Nor does it lie in the preacher's learning. Otherwise, it would consist in the wisdom of men. We might preach until our tongues rotted. Here he goes. Till we would exhaust our lungs and die. But never a soul would be converted unless the Holy Spirit be with the word of God to give it the power to convert the soul. Yes, every once in a while in God's economy, he gives some preachers that kind of brain and tongue. He gives all kinds of people the command to proclaim his gospel and truth. And I'm sure there were some people who went to hear Spurgeon just because of the way he said stuff. But he was not trying to manipulate people He was trying to make the gospel clear. And he had a great way of doing it. The rest of us have to be really careful. For instance, if I got really excited and read a paragraph that I'd spend a whole month trying to figure out how to write so that you would not even know it was me saying it, you'd think, what happened to him? Most people get ragged when they get older. He's got a golden tongue. There wasn't one misplaced verb. There wasn't one. There was nouns and adverbs and adjectives that I've never heard come from Bobby's mouth before. Then you would know something was amiss. But when you read it in Spurgeon, you know it's true. And you can see him as he preaches and hear him as, and read what he writes that he gets more and more excited the more he can say about God. 
and how great he is. And we need guys like that. That, you know, can say more than he's great. He's big. And then I'll go like this. Okay. <laughs> we need that. But we have to be discerning in our own levels about how we receive and why we get excited about certain things and certain people. Well, Paul has a lot more to say about the Holy Spirit's work if you read the rest of this chapter. And we'll get there. Let's close in prayer. Oh, Lord God Almighty, we are so glad that your mercies are new every morning. We need them. They're a demonstration of your faithfulness to us that you make us promise that is so down to earth, that is so ordinary, that is so on time. Every morning, you renew your mercies to us. And most of the time, if we're honest, Lord, we don't count on them. We negate them or we gripe about what we think you're up to. Lord, we confess that as sin. We pray that we would be fast to bow and worship, that we would be humbled knowing who we are and how much we need you. And that we would realize as your created beings and your people that we were made to know you. Your greatness, your holiness, your faithfulness, your unchangeableness, your brilliance, your mercy, your grace, your love. That we could see the fellowship in the Trinity. That we could see the power demonstrated in the saving of souls and all that you've made and all that you've done. And we thank you most for your son. What a gift. How dare we ever demand that you show us more and more of your love. It's all in Christ. And may we encourage each other with these words. May we see ourselves in the dangers that we see in the Corinthian church. And may we uh, hunger and thirst for the words that Paul writes to them to help them get back on track and lift you high and die to themselves. May we be that kind of church more and more and more in a world that does think your gospel is foolishness. May we not just stand strong, but that we pray that we may stand with the love you have for us, that we could show people the grace that you've shown to us, that we may uh, speak in ways that lift you up so that the power of your truth and your gospel could change hearts, bring people to know you. Lord, we thank you for your work amongst us and in us. We thank you that we can trust you. And we pray as your instruments that you would use us how you see fit. We ask all these things in your name. Amen. Would you please stand for our benediction? The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen.